You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Jeremiah Horowitz. Yes, I am your prophet of lamentation and doom. But you know what? I will continue speaking the truth because, as you guys know, we need a Jeremiah before we have an Isaiah, before we have an Ezekiel, before we have redemption. And until I am thrown in a pit, I do plan to speak the truth. Anyway, today is Constitution Day. Yes, between mowing the lawn and playing with the kids, I decided to do a podcast, even though it's a Sunday, um, because I love Constitution Day. As you guys know, it's very special to me. We got our Constitution Day manifesto out. Um, I did not update it much from last year. Usually I write a new one, but pretty much everything in there is so evergreen to the day we live in today. I figured we'd just repost it, so I know we have a lot of new listeners in this audience, and Gosh, anyone who hasn't read it, read it yet, make sure you read the importance of the Constitution, what exactly it was, how it pertains to today, how it got usurped, and what we can do about it. Let me start off with the good news, because frankly, uh, I don't have much good news here. Um, the good news is that after 230 years, we still have so many people in this country that believe in the principles and tenets behind what took place on September 17th of 1789. That, that That's the good news. 1787, sorry about that. Um, 1789 was when it, when it was ratified, the government was up and running, but two years before, they signed that document, 39 of the greatest founders came up with a document that brought the, r- really, all the principles that I would say lying the 230 words of the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, it brought it to fruition in a blueprint for governance. And to me, obviously, we can go on and on and explain what a constitutional republic is, what it isn't, the importance of federalism, separation of powers. But in one paragraph, the most concise explanation of what a constitutional republic is and really how it pertains to how we are not a constitutional republic anymore. We are a judicial autocracy, an oligarchy, political oligarchy. Federalist 39, Madison said the following, We may define a republic to be, or at least may bestow that name on a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure for a limited period or during good behavior. Every word there, by the way, is prescient. It is essential to such a government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or a favored class of it. Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressors uh, uh, exercising their oppressions by a delegation of their powers might aspire to the rank of Republicans and claim for their government the honorable title of a republic. 
It is sufficient for such a government that the persons administering it to be appointed, either directly or indirectly by the people, and that they hold their appointments by either of the tenures just specified, meaning limited tenure or good behavior. We have a government where nothing, none of the major decisions, and most prominently, the most important decisions, do not flow directly or indirectly from the people anymore. We have, this is the thesis of my book, Stolen Sovereignty. We have the stealing of the individual state and national sovereignty. You know, the Constitution really has three relationships, three branches of government, so to speak. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's not really branches of government, but three branches, not judicial, legislative, and executive. That's one sphere of it, but really the feds, states, and the people. And right now we have a judicial autocracy that has flipped everything on its head. What's a federal power? They give to the states. What's a state power? They give to the feds. What's an individual right? They repudiate. What's antithetical to an individual right? They read in as an unalienable right. What's God's law? They ban. What's antithetical to God's law? They exalt. That is, sadly, the so-called republic we live in today. We live in a republic where the, the federal judiciary now is the sole and final arbiter. You don't have you know, an equal plane there, which really wasn't equal. If you look at all the writings of Hamilton, Madison, it's very clear the judiciary was, was by far the weakest branch. It served a core function because you didn't want the legislature, the same people who wrote the laws and stood for re-election to go and interpret the application of them. Right, And that's why you have a judiciary, precisely because they're not elected. Precisely because if you have people that are sympathetic, for example, oh, I've been in the country illegally for 20 years, oh, what do you do? It doesn't matter. See, a politician might say, you know what? I'll give you a pass, not follow the law, because I feel bad, I feel bad. But a judge is not elected precisely Because they have to very mechanically interpret the law, not make new law, not nullify the law, and certainly not nullify and rewrite the Constitution. But that's what we have today. We have every major decision doesn't flow from the people. It flows from the unelected bodies. We spoke about this a lot the last couple of weeks on foreign policy. Trillions of dollars at stake. Thousands of American lives. um, You know, just people that have lost limbs. Tens of thousands wounded over nothing. We, we don't have a debate anymore over declaration of war, direction, what is our war. We have an article last week explaining the importance of what Rand Paul was trying to do. Whether you agree with every aspect of his foreign policy or not is immaterial, but you need a debate after 16 years in what we're doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Nope. It's the unelected bureaucrats in the Pentagon, the State Department, the military leadership basically running the show. Now, what about the elected officials? What about the president and Congress? That's where the party system, as I explained in this piece, the party politics comes into place. We no longer have branches of government rubbing against each other and checking and balancing each other. We have two political parties. And they occupy each respective branch, depending on the time. Now, the problem is that 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 would be bad enough if you replace your system with a party system. The problem is we have a unibrow party where it's really two parties that's one. So it's an oligarchy. So even the people we elect... They don't derive their power from us because they lie. 
They run on one thing and they get in there and do the exact opposite. And this is where we're going to get into what what Trump and his administration are doing. And his administration has nothing to do with his rhetoric and his campaign promises. It's the exact opposite. Nothing the government is doing is legitimate anymore. It doesn't flow from the people. We are no longer experiencing consent-based governance. Now, I want to get into some of what Trump's doing, you know, pulling out uh, so far a lot of really dicey information on whether he's indeed pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, whether he's indeed ending the transgenderism in the military. You know, everything, notice everything with this administration is in a few months. It's funny. It's always down the road. They never show us the body, habeas corpus, you know, show us the body right here, right now. Um... The thing is this, the least important thing going on in politics now is what Trump says. That's what the media focuses on completely. But it's not what Trump says. That's meaningless. It's a joke. He just blurts out of his mouth anything. Watch the actual policy outcomes of this administration. And you'll see that everything's in a few months. Oh, we're getting rid of Obama's amnesty. Well, we're actually not. You could renew it for two years within the next six months. And then even then, I might renew it if you don't pass amnesty, and you should pass amnesty. So this is a huge problem. We now find out that he called Jeff Sessions an idiot. There you go there. And then last night, this is Saturday night, guess what? He's out there campaigning for Luther Strange in Alabama. So the one hope we have to actually elect someone that will just totally fulfill the perceived promise of MAGA of the Trump agenda. Trump himself is going and undermining that, trying to give Luther Strange and Mitch McConnell and Karl Rove and all the industries, the Chamber of Crony Commerce, one last lifeline because there, you know, there's about five, six polls there that show pretty much um, Roy Moore, Judge Roy Moore, 14, 15, 17 points ahead. It's funny, the only poll showing it within the margin of error is the Senate leadership fund poll. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. They have no, just, they're, they're not even embarrassed to do that. But anyway, that's besides the point. So the problem is Trump is now becoming like the Muslim Brotherhood. What, what the Muslim Brotherhood is to the Islamists, where he's becoming an interference mechanism. Where not only isn't he helpful, but he's downright helping the other side by, by stifling the natural rebellion. You know, I could tell you, um, I know Matt Fuller of Huffington Post. I know it's a left-wing publication, but he he has very good sources within the Freedom Caucus. I happen to know this to be true. Part of the Freedom Caucus, um, part of their strat- strategy going into September was to drag they, – they knew they weren't going to get anything. They know they don't have the votes. They know they were going to get betrayed by Ryan and McConnell. But they wanted to draw out the betrayal, separate the debt ceiling, separate the budget, and, and make it painful so that they have to betray us on each item individually. And the idea was to try to work to remove Paul Ryan as speaker. Well, guess what? In comes Trump and owns it and capitulates more than even they wanted to, so now he bails them out. Because now they look like the good guys. I mean, this guy, it's funny, for someone who is anti-establishment, he has helped, has done more to help the establishment than anyone else. I spoke about this a lot last year during the congressional elections when Trump's name on the ballot brought out a bigger turnout and overwhelmed many of our candidates 
and allowed establishment people like Bill Schuster in Southwest Pennsylvania, um, Dave Joyce in Northeast Ohio to win re-election when our challengers were actually pretty close to knocking them off. So we're now in a nightmare scenario where we have a man that's using his perception as Make America Great Again to carry the ball in the end zone for the other team. But our people don't realize it because most of talk radio is bought out. They would have fought this in two seconds. I mean, the stuff he's doing on Amnesty. And by the way, the the White House put out a statement last week and said their priority is DACA. Not the American people. Now, I want to talk you, talk to you about what should be a priority and walk this back. You know, we'll get back to Trump. I started with the courts, went to Trump. Let's go back to the courts. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. It's pretty amazing. We have a coup d'etat in this country. We have a judicial emergency. We have a scenario where the courts are flipping our sovereignty laws on its head. What's illegal is legal. What's lawless is lawful. What's lawful is lawless. And yet, their acts of civil disobedience against our immigration laws are regarded as the law of the land. But not just the Supreme Court. A a puny district judge can now put a nationwide injunction on a policy. Now, I've told you many times before, I've written an article to this effect. District judges do not, even if you agree with judicial supremacy and that they could, you know, strike down stuff, so to speak, and, you know, have that binding over the other branches, it's only in the province of that case or controversy. So if you're a Chicago judge and you want to rule on behalf of Chicago, a Chicago federal judge, um, rule on behalf of Chicago and say they could be a sanctuary city, it doesn't make sanctuary cities the law of the land elsewhere. Now, in my view, it doesn't work in Chicago either. So what happened was over the weekend, I think this was Friday, a Chicago judge, forgetting his name, but by the way, he was a Reagan appointee. So again, this proves one of my longstanding theses that it's not just the Democrat appointees. The, all the Democrats are bad, but many of the Republican ones are bad too because the entire legal profession is just um, completely rotten to the core. But this was Judge Harry um, Leinenweber, I believe, of uh, Middle District, or I guess it's the Northern District of Illinois. It's uh, encompasses Chicago. And he said, nope. Jeff Sessions cannot cut off law enforcement grants to sanctuary cities. So, yes, they have an entitlement to federal money. Isn't it amazing? The courts say the federal government could do anything. They could step on a state. They could. States cannot set their own abortion regulations, marriage laws, election laws, draw their own districts. Feds have taken that over. Federal courts taken it over. But the one thing that federal government has, which is control of immigration policy, you could tell the federal government to go to hell. We're not going to follow it. Neo-Confederates. And not only that, if the federal government tries to punish you, not punitively punish you by taking away things that belong to you, but just saying, look, a federal grant we're not going to give to you. And so it's funny. Originally, uh, L.A. or San Francisco-based judge, a federal judge in California a couple of months ago said, you can't cut off other funding, like transportation funding. Now, I've dealt with that before. Yes, you absolutely can. You could. Well, the only thing a federal government can't do that's coercion is if the federal government wants to use the spending clause, their spending powers, to elicit a power they do not have. In other words, this was the um, 
Dolby, South Dakota, if they want to say that we're going to cut off all transportation funding to your state unless you go ahead and raise your drinking age or, you know, you, I don't know, you, you, you require those seeking a driver's license to get a hundred hours of instruction. You know, I mean, it's something that is clearly a state function. You, the federal government has no control over it, but they're trying to use the spending power to leverage that. That you cannot do if it's overly co- coercive. Actually, in South Dakota, they ruled the government could do it because it was only a minor cut. Um, but but here, <laughs> they're using the, the spending power they have to enforce a power they have, a foundational power they have. That Roger Sherman, Madison, and and um, Joseph Story all said very clearly why the federal government has control because they didn't want things like sanctuary cities. They don't use the term sanctuary cities, but they meant um, states that want to bolster their numbers, their um, you know representation by having a larger population of people that are uh, foreign to the to our country's values. Basically, paraphrasing what they said there. And now we're flipping that on its head. No, states could say go to hell and there's nothing you can do. So that was a Chicago judge. And by the way, this is another reason why it was such a betrayal in April and in uh, September, Trump signing a budget bill that didn't cut off funding to sanctuary cities. Now, look, the courts probably would have went after Congress, too, but it makes a big difference when it's two against one, when Congress and the executive branch are fighting back against the courts. But no, we're going to regard that as the law of the land law of the land and and it's also funny so they say federal the federal government can't coerce a state okay so the texas government went and enforced did a similar thing to punish the sanctuary cities the major cities like houston and san antonio el paso within texas from becoming sanctuary cities guess what screw you the judge said states can't do it either nobody could do it and you read what they're writing, they're literally engaging in civil disobedience. They're just saying, this is mean. I mean, can you imagine that? Complete political arguments as um, as legal arguments. You know, uh, Judge Posner, Richard Posner, the big clown from the Seventh Circuit, he just retired. And, you know, a lot of conservatives like bringing him up his name, how he says, oh, the Constitution is horrible. I don't even look at it anymore. I just do what I feel is right. And everyone's so appalled. But, I, 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 you know, I give him points for being honest. Three quarters of the judges on the federal bench are the same way, but we regard as what they say is legitimate because they disguise it in this legal fog. But I I digress. Anyway, so guess what's happening? In the meantime... Let me read you a case from San Francisco. You know, everyone still remembers the death of Kate Steinle. We've never passed Steinle's law, Kate's law, I mean, to punish sanctuary cities. There's no emergency, no priority from the Trump administration to uh, pursue sanctuary cities. I mean, again, don't confuse his rhetoric with what he does, okay? This, if you haven't caught on until now, then it's hopeless. This man goes to Twitter because... He is at least sensitive to what conservatives think about him, which is why it's so dumb for conservatives to beat around the bush, to, to not blame it on him. Punch him right in the face. You see, after I started this national discussion, by the way, on chain migration, you know, now everyone's talking about it, but you, you heard it here first, how it's not just the 800,000 people, it's 3.3 million, and then they're going to be able to bring in relatives. So Trump tweeted about that. But it, so at least it demonstrates he cares what we think. 
But again, if you don't keep a leash on him and follow up until the fat lady sings, then it's not going to matter. You're, if you don't verify that he actually fulfills a promise, it's meaningless. Twitter rhetoric is not a kept promise. With most presidents, you could kind of take it to, to the bank that his rhetoric more or less portends a specific direction of the administration. Here, it's a joke. They're doing what they want, and he doesn't care. He just cares about hoodwinking the base. So don't fall for this scam. But anyway, sanctuary cities. I'm, I'm reading here from a San Francisco Chronicle article. Alleged San Francisco killer had been released from jail despite requests from immigra- for immigration hold. One of these... One of the three men accused of using a gun stolen from a San Francisco police officer to kill a man in the Mission District last month had been released from county jail earlier in the year despite a request from federal immigration agents that he be held and turned over for potential deportation, officials said Friday. ICE officials lodged what is known as a detainer request for Jesus Perez Arjo, whatever, after he was arrested three months before the August 15th street killing of 23-year-old Abel Enrique Esquivel Jr. said I spokesman James James Schwab. The agency asked the city to hold him for up to 24 hours after his release. So this guy was arrested probably for being a punk. Um, They're about to release him and ICE saw it on the database and said, hey, hold him so we can have enough time to get our agents down there and, and pick him up. But San Francisco and every, I'm just continuing reading here, San Francisco and every other county in the Bay Area does not honor detainer requests because of concerns that they violate inmates' constitutional rights. And San Francisco, where leaders have rallied behind sanctuary policies that limit local cooperation and deportation efforts, notifies ICE in advance of an inmate's release only under strict circumstances. Oh, he was arrested on a, on a marijuana charge. But um, anyway, this is another murder. You know, the ICE director has said that 10,000 crimes have been committed recently, I think just this fiscal year, after they were released from sanctuary cities. But guess what? We don't have sanctuary cities anymore. We have a sanctuary nation. The courts have made the entire country a sanctuary because they're now saying, forget about defending sanctuary cities, that sanctuary cities can um, tell the government to go to hell. They're saying that even jurisdictions that want to cooperate cannot do so. They are saying that, A, the 48-hour detainer is unconstitutional, and they're saying that um, there's nothing that federal or state governments could do to clamp down on sanctuary cities. So we have a de facto sanctuary nation in this country. Where is the sense of urgency to deal with this? This should be the number one priority, not DACA. Unbelievable. You know what's so tragic is you think on Constitution Day as we celebrate 230th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. A man named Governor Morris, one of the dudes who signed the Constitution, by the way, he is re- he is believed to have been the author of the Constitution, the actual prose. Um, he wasn't the most instrumental in the ideas behind it, but the actual language, he drafted it. Um Madison, in in his just notes on the Constitutional Convention, he said that the text of the Constitution, quote, fairly belongs to the pen of Mr. Morris. And certainly, 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 
the preamble, we the people, that is his mark. Everyone knows that's that's Mr. Mars. Isn't it amazing that the man who drafted the Constitution said this? He said this actually during the debates on... Um, it was either... I'm trying to remember. It was either... It might have been... Pre- how long a senator has to live in this country in order to be eligible to run for Senate, how long you have to be a citizen for. Uh, I'm forgetting what the context was, but he said this, every society from a great nation down to a club had the right of declaring the conditions on which new members should be admitted. There can be no room for complaint. There were, there were a couple other quotes I have from him in my book. He was a strong advocate for sovereignty, obviously the right of a nation to exclude, to bring in only people that they want under such circumstances as they desire. And now this man's own words are being used, we the people, to mean foreign nationals, to grant standing to foreign nationals to sue and denude the citizenry and their people of representation. That now you have, they get standing to unilaterally assert jurisdiction, obtain citizenship for their kids, and now pretty much litigate citizenship for themselves and judicial amnesty, nullify any enforcement, get themselves counted in the census, affect our our, um, reapportionment, the number of seats different states have. This is stolen sovereignty at its core. This is the antithesis of the consent-based constitution we have that is rightfully called a constitutional republic that derives its powers either directly or indirectly from we the people. Really, really sad that this is how far we've fallen. But, um, but yeah, who is fighting back against the courts? You know what's interesting? In Israel, they're having a very similar crisis right now with their Supreme Court, um, stolen sovereignty, where they're giving all sorts of rights to Arabs, and, you know, the Arabs could live wherever they want, the Jews can't. They also have a big illegal immigration problem from Sudan, Eritrea, these type of countries come in there. They're, they're giving them rights, same deal, you can't detain them, you can't, you know, and at least there, there's a national discussion in their parliament. There, there's, you know, the more conservative parties there are actually discussing ju- judicial reform, their version of it. No one's even discussing it here. I'm the only one discussing this issue the last few years. It's not even an issue. There, there, there's nothing the courts are doing. I remember 15 years ago when the courts originally started with the homosexual agenda, you at least had a debate in Congress about it. They never really took it past the goal line, but at least you had a debate. Now you have on immigration, the equivalent of Roe and Obergefell on social issues, completely denuding Congress of the ability to set immigration policy. The area of law for which the courts themselves said for 200 years, they have no involvement in it. Flipping it on its head in a matter of a year or two, and there's nothing. Trump's not saying anything either. The guy, I I mean, here's the thing about Trump. Here is what is so indefensible, and here is why I have no confidence henceforth, and you have to view everything circumspectly, with circumspection. You really have to be suspicious of even the things that seem like are a fulfillment of a promise until you see the fat lady sing. You see the body in front of you. You see the policy shredded. Because not only is he not a conservative, but A, he cares about what the media thinks about him. We know that now the media has had fawning coverage for a week now and he's enjoying it. 
So you have to assume he's going to head more in that direction. But moreover, what I can never get over and, and what none of his defenders have been able to defend is loyalty. So I was always told he's not a conservative, but Daniel, by golly, this man is loyal to those who supported him. And given that so many conservatives supported him, he's going to be loyal to them. He watched while McMaster and these other guys and Kelly have fired Bannon and everyone else from the administration. Jeff Sessions has done so much for him. Jeff Sessions could be, was the linchpin right after South Carolina to give him that conservative endorsement, the first Senate endorsement. Real stinging defeat to Ted Cruz. You know, when Sessions didn't endorse him, endorsed Trump. And now he calls him an idiot and says, you know what? I didn't need you anyway. You didn't do much for me. That is a man you can never trust. And by the way, you heard it here first, not just on Tillerson and Mattis, but that Kelly was a schmuck. Kelly is an utter liberal. Now it's clear he's obsessed with amnesty. He's barring any information from him, from people like me that are writing what I'm writing about immigration, only allowing pro-amnesty people, pro-Iran deal people. Oh, and that's another thing, by the way. Iran got their amnesty too this week. Continued sanctions relief. It's one hit after another. One hit after another. And then, of course, betraying his base by supporting the antithesis of what he ran on in Luther Strange. Folks, there's another week left. Um, Judge Moore, God willing, in just eight days, could have the nomination sewed up. You know, the Democrats are going to make a run at it because of the special election and there's so much acrimony in the primary now. They're going to hope to make a run at it in the general election. I'm not too worried about it, but he's going to need money. Go to Roy Moore for Senate's uh, website. You know what to do there. Um, he needs your support. He needs your help. And I'm going to do my best to take this man and make him a star. Um, he has the raw materials. He has the resolve that nobody nobody else has. I hope to work with him on policy, on communication, staff him up, become a senator. This is a man who believes in the Constitution. This is a man who's on the level of our founders, who believe, believes in the same thing they, do, they did quite literally not, not, you know, every conservative organization is putting out Constitution Day stuff today. Nonsense. They don't believe in it. If you, be, if you don't believe in ignoring the courts for doing what they're doing today, you don't believe in the Constitution, period. And th- this is really what um, Judge Moore spoke to. I didn't have time to get to the other court case. I'm going to have that in a piece out this week. Um, but basically, a judge in New York is now trying to codify DACA, meaning not immigration law is the law of the land. DACA is the law of the land. Obama's illegal amnesty. And they're now saying that Trump can't cut off amnesty October 5th. That's an arbitrary de- deadline. C- c- guys, could you imagine that? Could you imagine for a minute a president saying, you know, let's say Trump saying, yeah, I don't know. I, if you, Congress, if you don't act on tax cuts, we're going to allow younger workers to... I'm going to direct the Treasury, the IRS, to withhold 10% less in taxes from younger workers. Call it DADA, you know, Deferred Action from Tax Enforcement or Tax Act, whatever. And, you know, now, obviously, this is never going to happen because Democrats would engage in civil disobedience over this. They wouldn't allow it to happen. But let's say they allowed it to happen. And let's say the Democrats won and you have President Elizabeth Warren take office. Now, imagine her leaving it in place for seven months, continuing to not collect taxes. 
<laughs> never would never happen from day one, but whatever. And then even in September of her first year, she said, well, you have another month. And even then, you know, you can go and renew it for another two years. And then imagine having American taxpayers sue in court saying, you're getting rid of data. October 5th is an arbitrary deadline. And the judge saying, yes, this is, I mean, it's unbelievable what the judge said. He was just talking about all these political arguments. Here we have people that are terrified of being deported. Dude, that's a political argument. Are you saying we can't have immigration laws? Yes, they are. And unless we fight back against judicial autocracy, yes, they can and they will because they know they can get away with it. If you crown one branch of government sole and final arbiter status, they will take it. They will absolutely positively take it from you. There's nothing we can do about that. You know, this is what Madison said in Federalist 49. The several departments being perfectly coordinate by the terms of their common commission, neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. Certainly not the unelected courts, which were given neither power of the purse, power of enforcement, um, just to adjudicate the application of congressional statutes, sometimes state, state laws, in accordance with that particular case or controversy that has legitimate standing, which by, by definition, an illegal alien cannot have standing. So here's where we are. We, need a, we just need a movement. We need a movement that is willing to speak to these issues. I think if we had a movement about stripping the course of their power, it would spread like wildfire. Don't tell me, all oh, the education system won't let, allow for it anymore. No, I, I think this is common sense enough. We could, we could definitely do this. We wish our buddies at the Federalist Party well because they're built on the federalism expressed in the Constitution. We wish Judge Moore very well in the next eight days because we're going to need him to pull this out. We're going to have to be on top of this president. You know, I'm glad at least some people like Ann Coulter are now, you know, after saying in Trump we trust instead of in God we trust, well, the guy's a buffoon. But, you know, it would be nice if some of these people would apologize to us for foisting him upon us, for being wrong about him. You know, I'll never forget Mark Levin, he must have done this two, three times. He apologized on a number of occasions for endorsing Orrin Hatch for re-election six years ago. I don't remember exactly the details but basically, it was something like Orrin Hatch caught Levin in, at Reagan Airport one time when he was flying out. And it's like, hey, I love what you're doing. This is great. You know, these guys are attacking me. I have this clown as a primary opponent. Can you endorse me? And he endorsed him. And then, you know, he's apologized for that ever since. Now, obviously, that's amidst many, many good endorsements he's made, much more than any of the other talk show hosts. But this was the, kind of the one mistake he's made. And he apologized. Where are the apologies from these people? But instead, they're full of misinformation. Some of these talk show hosts, by the way, are just, just an utter disgrace. Anyway, there you go. May God help us, give us strength, give us knowledge, give us the fortitude and the intellect to make the case and build the movement to restore this great document built upon godly values, most importantly, built upon the preamble of the Declaration of Natural Law and Nature as God. Happy Constitution Day, guys. See you tomorrow. Look forward to many of my articles. Looking forward to hearing your feedback as well. Tweet me at Armand Conservative. Send me emails anytime. This is going to be a long week. 
but together we can make a difference. God bless y'all. Take care.